Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Press Row. Behind-the-scenes stories from the world of sports media. Press Row. Insight and interviews from around the sports world. Now, here's your host, Jonah Siegel. Welcome back. Another episode in the Press Row. Well, most of the time you come here, you can expect to hear from personalities in and around sports and sports media. Uh, I had a rare opportunity to talk to a real Canadian broadcast legend. And when opportunity knocks, you answer the door. I think you'll agree. Uh, Incredible stories all along and an amazing one, how he got his start. Uh, that coming up, but first let me tell you about my friends at Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to do your online gaming. Uh, they've got you covered. They got news. They got scores. They got odds. It's the, also the best place to bet as well. You get to play along. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device and sign up today. They'll give you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's Bet Online, your online sports experts. <laughs> This is the Press Row with Jonas Eagle. The boxing term when one goes up a weight class is, is to, be, uh, to be fighting above their weight. And I would certainly say that I am doing that today. Thrilled to have today's guest join me and you uh, by extension. He has been in so many of your homes virtually, and that has nothing to do with COVID uh, for years and years and years a voice that is unmistakable. How many years was it, Peter, that you hosted the National? 20 plus for sure. Yeah, 30 years hosting the National, 50 years uh, with the CBC. The first 20, I was uh, a correspondent, reporter, and then uh, then started anchoring. So you've heard the voice now, and then I've given away the big, the big reveal. He is Peter Mansbridge. Peter, how are you? I'm good, Jonah. It's great to talk to you. First and foremost, as I like to ask everybody, how are you doing during the COVID thing? How's your family? Everybody healthy? Well, everybody's good. Everybody's uh, vaccinated. Uh, well, with the exception of one granddaughter who's still a little too young, but uh, should get it in the next uh, week or two, I think. But uh, everybody else is, is uh, has been shot up, so to speak, uh, waiting for second doses. But, uh, but you know, feeling good, uh, it, it's been, as it has been for everybody, quite the past year or so, and uh, we've all learned to live with certain restrictions on our lifestyle and, and hoping that uh, at some point this is going to end. You have, I'm going to call a Seinfeldian story of how <laughs> you got started in, in broadcast. Uh, I'm not going to tell it. I've only read about it in Wikipedia, but... Uh, it, it certainly sounds like a Seinfeld episode to me. Can you share that with us? Don't believe everything you read, <laughs> especially in Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia has some funny stuff on me. I, I, you know, they have me married to somebody I've never heard of before, <laughs> um, which is always, you know, makes you doubt everything else that you read in it. Uh, but uh, listen, I did have an unusual start. Uh, we're talking 1960s here. I didn't finish high school and I never went to university. So uh, there was a limited track out there in terms of what I could be doing. I was in the Navy for a while, uh, not very long. 
1966 and 67, I was in the Navy. When I got out of the Navy, I ended up going to Northern Manitoba, uh, working for a small airline. In the Navy, I'd been in flying training in, in uh, Northern Manitoba. I was working for a little airline called um, Transair. And I ended up in Churchill, Manitoba. And I'd only been there, I don't know, a month or two at the most, when uh, so there was a, a flight getting ready to leave for uh, Winnipeg through Thompson and Paw, And I was asked, um, one of the ticket agents who was, you know, kind of overwhelmed with the, the number of passengers at the counter, asked me if I'd announced the flight on the PA system. So I did. And it was something like, you know, Transair Flight 106 for Thompson, Paw, and Winnipeg now ready for boarding. And people heard <laughs> heard this and they all went off to the door except one guy who came back towards where I was standing at the microphone. He said, Hey, you've got a, you've got a good voice. Have you ever thought about being in radio? And I said, no, I've never thought about that. And he said, well, I'm the manager of the CBC Northern service station here in Churchill. And I'm looking for somebody to do the late night shift. And I can't get anybody. Everybody I offer the job to turns it down. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. I'll work during the day at, uh, you know, Transair, and in the evening I can work at the CBC because there's not, a, at that time anyway, there wasn't an awful lot to do in Churchill. And so um, that's what I did. That's how I started the very next day. And that was, that was, <laughs> says something about the HR department of the CBC in the 1960s. There wasn't a, a real grilling of background. I don't think they asked me anything about where I'd been to school, where I graduated or not. Uh, and, uh, you know, all it was, was the voice. They thought the voice was good. So that's how I started. Now it was a part-time job and, uh, uh, you know, but I made an impression and one thing led to another and that's how the 50 years started. Yeah. I think one would argue, Peter, that you would have a better chance of getting hit by lightning two or three <laughs> times on the same day than being overheard in rural Manitoba making yeah. an airline announcement than ending up as the eventual longest serving host. I think yeah. if not just to Canada, maybe even, I'm not sure if anyone hosted a national news broadcast, as long as you do that, that is, as they say, remarkable. I, I love, by the way, at the bottom of your Wikipedia page, I'm going to assume now that all of these are true. You <laughs> have a good seven or eight inches worth of honorary degrees for somebody who didn't graduate high school. That is quite the accomplishment. Yeah, I know. I, I've tried to trade in, I, I, I can't remember where it is, 13 or 14 honorary degrees. I get another one actually in a couple of weeks. Um, and most of them are doctorates. And I've offered to, you know, trade them all in for one real one. <laughs> no, nobody's biting on that. Um, I was also, you know, I was chancellor of uh, Mount Allison University in uh, Sackville, New Brunswick, one of, you know, the leading small universities in Canada. And, uh, and I always found it ironic, especially at convocation time, when I was handing out the degrees. <laughs> Here was a guy who'd never gone through what, what these young people had gone through to achieve their success. And it's always embarrassing to, you know, talk to journalism classes when you'd say, you know what, I never had. That, I mean, think about it. Like if you were talking to a child or a grandchild about the odds of um, that happening, you know, how, 
how do you go from announcing the arrival or departure of a plane to, I'm going to play a clip for you that I'm hoping we can talk about a little bit. I think when people hear that voice, they think they know him. They certainly trust him. There's a reassurance that regardless of what we've gone through, everything's going to be okay. That's Peter Mansbridge's voice. Like, I got to tell you, like that is, uh, I watched the, the tribute video again, uh, mm. where I found that clip. That was Pinball Clemens. And, and I wasn't looking for a sports figure. It's just the headline on the, on the CBC website tells it all. And it says the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, they all say it over and over. They're just, you're the voice of truth and you're the voice of trust. And for those of us, you know, who grew up hockey fans, and sometimes you were the voice of the devil because you were taking hockey off the air. But when news, <laughs> when news broke, you were certainly it. That is quite the transition, if you will. What, what inside you, who taught you, if anybody, you know, to follow that path? Well, listen, trust and truth is what it's all about in terms of journalism. And, you know, we can talk about where we are on that platform in this day. Uh, but for me, it was... You know, I, obviously, I got to stand on the shoulders of a lot of incredible people who work at the in the CBC News department, and who uh, guided me along the way and helped me and everything else. But I guess you know it goes to your family and to your you know my parents and my sister and my brother and uh, you know we used to every night at uh, dinner we always had dinner together as a family and we we always discussed as far back as I can remember as a little kid, uh, the kind of news or current issues of the day. And, you know, we learned to debate them and discuss them and talk about them in real terms and in terms that uh, were not only believable, but were based on truth. Uh, and so that, in many ways, kind of came naturally. Uh, to me, and I was lucky enough to have this relationship with uh, with viewers and listeners, and uh, and still do. You know, I you know I do a podcast like you do, uh, Jonah, and it you know it's being picked up now by you know Sirius XM, and they run it every day. Um, and uh, I I still seem to you know I have disagreements with some of my listeners. That's all good. You you, you want to promote that. Um, but they, they trust me, uh, and, uh, they, I've always been very fortunate on that front. I mean, obviously some people who hate the CBC, um, and there, and surprisingly, there are some people who don't like the CBC, uh, they're not going to like anybody who's on it. And, uh, you know, including me when I was, when I was there, I still do some work for the CBC. In fact, I'm just working today on it documentary that I'm uh, shooting that'll that'll end up on the air on September 10th, the night before the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this year. Um, so I, you know, I've, uh, I've, I, I still do uh, work for the CBC as well. So this past summer, as I was saying, I drove to Toronto from Seattle through the United States and then back on the way home through Canada. And I was a bit of a taskmaster in that I would make the family get up early in the morning and we would drive until just after dusk so we could get a full day's driving in. And I'll tell you, there's a couple mornings that I was the only one awake in the car, maybe one of the dogs. 
And I would put on the best part about satellite radio to me is you can listen to it almost anywhere when you're in the middle of nowhere, which I was. Sure. And I turned on uh, CNN and I turned on Fox simultaneously, not, you know, one after the other on a Saturday or Sunday morning, just to hear what had gone on or what the morning, the Sunday shows were discussing. And I said to, I've said this to a bunch of people, if you were an alien and you landed on this planet and you didn't know any better, but you were educated, so you're smart, you actually wouldn't know which truth to believe. <laughs> um, we were in the midst of the US election at the time. And part of my challenge personally has been the erosion of trust. And that a lot of times, whether it's in print broadcast or otherwise, I, I think that's a problem that we have now that everything is so political that you know, here in, here in the States, you know, you have CNN way on one side and you have Fox on the other. How, how does somebody that used to make news and continues to do, how do you view that today? You know, it, it, it's, a, it's not a complicated question, but it is one that involves a, a degree of background. I mean, I, I have no problem with opinion journalism as long as it's framed that way. The people clearly understand what they're listening to is not the news. It's the opinion of uh, any number of hosts. And the way the American cable news networks seem to have framed themselves now is, you know, we'll deal with news during the day and at night it's all opinion. But it's not framed that way for the viewers. And a lot of viewers start accepting opinion as news. And that has done some damage to us in terms of the trust factor. There's been an overall erosion of trust in a, in a number of professions, and you just you just need to look at the data on that. Uh, you know, the number of agencies like Edelman and others who do a, an annual trust um, survey around the world uh, in different countries, and significant numbers of people re, uh, you know polled or talked to. And the numbers for all professions have come down. Uh, at the top are still the same old professions. They're always at the top. And they're even stronger today than they were, have been in the past. So they're one of the few that haven't come down. And they are the first responders or doctors, nurses, firefighters, and you know, police officers, in spite of everything that's been going on. Those are near the top. But nurses and doctors, for sure, are up there at the top. Who's really slid? A lot of other people have slid. Journalists, politicians. Now, politicians are even lower now than what we used to call used car salesmen, who are now specialists in previously owned vehicles, <laughs> which sounds so much better. <laughs> sounds really good. But um, so politicians are beneath them. And journalists, depending on the survey you look at, are not that far ahead. So there's been real hits. Part of it has been this issue of not being clear as to whether what's opinion and what's news. And I, you know, I, I, I see the same issue in Canada as well. And perhaps have even contributed to it over time. But we got to deal with it. Uh, because if you don't have trust as journalists, you got nothing. You're in big trouble in terms of your future and your profession's future. Um, I, you know, I, I, I teach <laughs> among the other things that I do these days, I, 
I did the odd lecture at the Monk School of the University of Toronto. And last year I had, just before the pandemic started, I had 100 uh, graduate students in the room with me and I conducted a survey about their kind of attitudes towards the news media, where they got their news from, what they trusted, who they trusted, that kind of thing. I asked them, give me one word that describes your feeling about the media right now, the journalism. And none of the words were flattering. You know, they were all negative. And the biggest, I, I think what it boiled down to was they just don't feel journalists are transparent enough about what they do and how they do it. And I get that. They're right about that. You know, we have to be more transparent about how we determine, you know, I mean, every news organization is different, have different policies in that. But whoever you are, you should be willing to talk about what your guidelines are, what your policies are, how you determine and decide what you think is news, what you decide on the order of things, uh, how you decide on how much time you're going to spend on any one topic. Uh how you make decisions around anonymity of sources. All of that stuff, I think, has to come forward, and we have to be much more transparent in doing it. And you see some of the leading organizations doing that, you know, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post. Um, they're spending more time when they have a big story. They have a, <laughs> a story at the side which explains how they went about doing the story. And that's great. That's, that's part of being much more transparent and engaging with your audience in terms of ensuring there's a, there's a degree of trust there. Uh, but I think it's an issue and I think it's a big issue. And I, I, I think we all have to understand um, that damage has been done and we have to, if we wanna restore the credibility of our profession, uh, we're gonna have to work at it. How much more difficult is the job of working at it when the when the leader and this isn't an anti-trump campaign but when the when the leader of the free nation is every other day using the words fake news about some of the some of the organizations you just talked about well like just about everything else uh he did and still does uh you know his claim that he came up with the phrase fake news is a lie. Um, you know, it's been around for decades. <laughs> Not surprisingly, the Nazis used it a lot in Germany in the 30s um, in describing a variety of different things. Listen, you know, the problem that, that Trump created and people fell for, and I mean fell for it within the media, is that he believed and he's not alone in this belief that if you tie a, tell a lie enough times, it becomes the truth to a lot of people. And this kind of alternate reality stuff. And at the beginning, when you go back to, to you know, it's easy now to dump on Trump and most of the media does <laughs> most, not all. Um, but at the beginning, when he was consistently lying, People were afraid to call it that. You know, you'd watch, you'd watch 
discussion and debate on whether it was CNN or MSNBC or wherever it may be and said, well, no, we can't use the L word. You know, maybe he just doesn't understand or maybe he got was given the wrong facts or something. It was it was blatantly obvious he was lying. He was deliberately lying uh, with a goal in mind, uh, which was to change people's views about whatever that particular topic was. I remember I was at the inauguration of Trump. As a, you know, I used to go to all the inaugurations to do the broadcast. And, you know, I was at Trump's inauguration in uh, would be 2017, I guess, January. And immediately within 24 hours, this discussion started about how big the crowd was. It was just stupid. You know, when you look back at it now, it was a stupid thing to dominate in the news. But it was dominant because he was lying about what was <laughs> what was there. Uh, I'd been to, you know, the, the Obama uh, inaugurations, and especially the first one, there was no comparison in terms of size. It was way, way bigger. But anyway, not only did he lie about it, but he sent all his flunkies out to lie about it. Because <laughs> you know? that's what and mattered to him. That's what mattered to him. But people were afraid to call it a lie. So I was, I when I was flying out of Washington the next morning, after these news conferences, I guess it was on the Sunday morning, the inauguration being on Friday, and I was flying out on the Sunday morning on a 6 a.m. flight, and the, you, you know what that flight's like, you kind of take a curve around, around the White House and around the Memorial, Washington Memorial. I was looking down, and I, I was still in range so that I could tweet, even though you, I guess you weren't supposed to, but I tweeted something along the lines of, you know, it, it's a sad commentary when the, you know, the president of the United States is lying, damaging a fundamental pillar of democracy, right? And I got back to, <laughs> to Canada. I got, you know, I had people, I had a lot of people, negative comments on Twitter, but I had negative comments within my own operation, within the CBC, saying, you can't say that. You can't use that word about the president of the United States. I go, why not? He lied. And he's going to keep lying. And he never stopped. And he still does with the biggest lie ever. So, but falling for it, not calling it out, is all a part uh, of, uh, of a, a journalism that is, that is allowing itself to drift. Um, you know, eventually there, there became this kind of overloading of people. Uh, you know, running fact checks and, uh, you know, body counts on lies. <laughs> but one of, uh, one of them, a Torontonian who's made a good career out of it. He's now with season. Daniel, yeah, Daniel Dale, um, who cut his teeth on Rob Ford, right? But uh, anyway, he, um, you know, you know, good for them that they did it. Uh, but as I said earlier, and it's important to notice this, is that Donald Trump isn't the only one who uses that who uses that technique to try and get ahead, and that, it's not the only country where it happens. So, where does um, social media now fit into this? As everybody, including me, have the ability to publish content and news, what we consider to be news and or opinion. Well, remember when it all started? You know, there's a hilarious thing on on the internet if you Google. If you Google internet, <laughs> the, the beginnings of internet. I hope, see, Al, I hope Al Gore shows up because, you know, we all know he created it. <laughs> right. 
But you'll see a clip of me introducing a piece on on the on the program at night on the national. And it's it's like it's the first time the word has ever crossed my lips on the air because I say, you know, tonight we're going to look at something called the internet. It's it's really funny to look at and and listen to uh, this. But it was a great Bill Cameron report where he was trying to explain what the internet was and what it was, what the potential was. And the whole dream behind it, of those who were in that early first wave, was the ability for all of us to have a voice, right? And this was going to be great. This was going to be the definition of democracy. Everybody could get involved. Well, <laughs> that's what's happened. But you take the bad with the good. And, uh, and that's, where we're, that's where we're at. I mean, fundamentally, it's the greatest tool of communication out there, right? I mean, the kids who grow up today have at their fingertips the ability to research anything, find anything in a way that no other generation in the history of the planet has had. The problem is the dirt that comes with it. Now, you can be the, you can determine what you're, you want to and what you can read. So the, you, you have to accept part of the blame. You is like the, the great, you know, the collective you or we, we have to accept part of the blame. Uh, if we let our news feeds get cluttered by garbage, um, garbage in, it'll be garbage out. And, uh, and that's kind of where we are. It still has the potential of being this unbelievably great tool and, and giving us all the ability to understand more, to learn more, to communicate more than we've ever dreamt of. Um, but boy, we're at a, we've long since passed a crossroads of trying to determine how we're gonna, and whether we ever should monitor and regulate this great tool. And uh, I, st I still think the great moderator regulator of this is us as individuals. And you, you can make that determination, uh, but you have, to, you have to work at it. The challenge is from a technical standpoint that via technology, we're able to manipulate audience and by virtue of manipulating audience that affects the algorithm in which things appear to be popular. So you can create bots and fake accounts on various platforms yeah. that look like something is very, very popular and getting tons of viewers, if you will, um, which makes something more reality than perhaps other real news. That's part of the challenge so that I don't know the number offhand, but it, it's staggering the number of people in North America who list Facebook as their number one source of news. Um, when there's certainly nobody or there was nobody really vetting what that meant. And to your point, I don't know if you saw this, but Tucker Carlson was sued uh, in the US in the last eight to 10 months. And the Fox defense in his case was nobody in their right mind thinks Tucker, Tucker Carlson, the Tucker Carlson show is news.
<laughs> yeah, there he is breaking stories and, and showing things as to be fact uh, without the banner of, by the way, this is just opinion. And as you said, right. I, I just, when you were at the CBC or even now, what's the fear? What's the, the hope? Those two, those two end zones, if you will, of a younger generation that doesn't watch or consume news as your generation did or even my generation did and we are certainly on a slope and it's not necessarily going the right way yeah and that's why you know you'll see all news organizations and especially the cbc which is the most vulnerable right now um because it's traditional audience has on all things not just news but on all things has dropped dramatically um why you see them doing handstands and somersaults and you know trying to figure out a way to marry with social media and with the uh, digital world sometimes successfully not always um, and, and they're constantly revisiting how you know when i did that that thing i referred to with the 100 graduate students one of the other questions was how you know what do you what's your trusted news source which gets to your the point you just made and, you know, I've been doing this for, well, for a couple of years. <laughs> and, and I've, you know, I, I've often asked that question over time. And it's just to see where TV is in relation to radio and print, right? And TV's always been ahead. The number one source, the most trusted source, all that kind of stuff. Um, rightly or wrongly, you know, I mean, you can, I, I, and I would certainly enter into that debate with, whether it should be the number one compared with print and radio, but that's, that's so history now, because when I asked that question of these hundred graduate students, not one hand went up on print, not one. There were, uh, you know, five or six on television, seven or eight. They were all in single digits on, uh, on TV. Up at the top was social media. When you broke it down, it was exactly what you said. It was Facebook. Uh, an increasing number on podcasts, which I found in many ways encouraging because there are a lot of good podcasts out there. Really smart podcasts. And I don't know about you, but I, I get a lot of mail. And that mail is, is really smart. You know, it's, it's not trolls. It's not you know, crapping on this, that, or the other thing. It's entering a discussion, not always agreeing with me, that's for sure, but doing it in a smart, intelligent, you know, way uh, that provokes and promotes discussion. Um, so that was encouraging to see that. But what was really a shocker was to realize that what, you know, I'd grown up with, what you'd grown up with, um, are just not in the same game anymore with that younger generation, right? Um, but that younger generation is going to be the generation, right? <laughs> See, what's terrifying to me about that statement, Peter, is that I'm okay with getting news and information from social media. It terrifies me to hear that, well, they're, gra they're graduate students, so I'm going to say they're smart and educated, that they're saying they get their news from all places. Like of all the places, to me, Facebook is the equivalent of the National Acquirer as a news source. Right. 
But what they were also really saying was they get their news from this and I'm holding up my phone, right? That's yep. where they go. They're not tied to a television on a wall somewhere or radio. They're certainly not picking up a newspaper, get their hands dirty, but they'll read something on here that comes from a newspaper. And so my argument to them is just, you know, if you're, if you're depending on, on your phone or in social media generally, just make sure you know what you're reading, where it's coming from. You know, it's okay to say your trusted source is Facebook if all you're reading is, you know, the New York the Times and the CBC, Mail or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, it's when you're into the fringe and the conspiracy stuff that you know uh, you know you're in trouble, or you should know you're in trouble. Let's pivot into something a little bit less serious, if you will, and have let's let's have some fun. So I'm going to play you another clip. You never got frustrated that that each spring hockey took precedence over the news. Well, you know, there was one time where news took precedence over hockey, and you know, there were real consequences from that day. Now, uh, Montreal and the Philadelphia Flyers are currently playing overtime, and uh, are we able to go there or not? We are not able to go there. That's the way things go today in uh, sports on this network. <laughs> and. Uh, the Flyers and the Canadians have us in suspense and will remain that way until we can find out somehow who won this game or who's responsible for the way we do things here. Good night for Hockey Night in Canada. Now, what's, what's amazing about that is, one, I wish you all could see Peter's reaction. Um, he was cracking up. Two, what's incredible about that is that that clip comes from a tribute to the 85 Oilers back in 2018 um, yeah. in tribute of Dave Semenko, which is a whole different discussion if we want to talk about the current state of hockey. But um, it was Dave Hodge uh, interviewing you, if you will, at that moment. And I, I, I will tell you, I was curious. My first thought was, I got to go back and see if you were on the desk when he was on the desk of the pencil moment. Uh, or the pen moment, whichever it was, clearly you were. Uh, and here he is interviewing you about that moment. So I was curious if, you know, hate is a strong word, but if you guys had immense dislike for each other. No, no, not at all. Dave and I go back a long way um, and are good friends. We were doing that event in Edmonton together, along Correct. with John Cannon, who was, uh, you know, former uh, executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada. Um, so, we, <laughs> in fact, I, I for the longest time I had the pen that he tossed across the studio because because uh, we we didn't share studios but we shared the space. So it was one studio was right next to the other. Um, so <laughs> that was that was quite a day, uh, you know. And Dave got fired, and then you know that moment created Ron McLean. <laughs> you know, there'd be no Ron McLean <laughs> if that hadn't happened. Um, but, you know, it's one of these, some, I don't know who made the decision. It certainly wasn't us. We were told that we had to go on the air. I can't remember. There was some, there was some news event happening. It was an overwhelming one, but it all, it was something that was, that was going on that, 
you know, was, was going to lead the program that night. But it was, uh, it, it was a moment, and uh, Dave's a class act, and, uh, and he still is. He was, uh, he was great that night in Edmonton. He, he told a lot of, a lot of stories. We had, uh, we had a lot of laughs. So you're sitting there on the desk, and you watch your friend melt down, if you will, and he's about to pass the baton to you. <laughs> you know the audience is definitely watching. Um, <laughs> And What's they're all hockey fans, so you can imagine right. how popular I was on that in that moment. What's going uh, through your mind? Which was always the problem through uh, through the Stanley Cup too, because I, you know, I'd come on, I don't know, usually the end of the second period and do like kind of five minute news recap because the national was being, you know, delayed because of the hockey game during the cup for two months, whatever it was, and. Um, and people didn't want to watch the news, even in an intermission of a hockey game. So I'd get uh, I'd get it for that as well. And I've had hockey players, you know, I've had like I remember Sidney Crosby telling me he said I because he, he I can't remember why, but he he sent me a sweater with uh, or gave me a sweater. It was his first year in the NHL, and he'd signed it, and and he he gave it to me, and he said you were the first person I ever watched doing the news because you kept getting in the way of the hockey game. <laughs> and I've had more than a few tell me that, but also nice things uh, as well. Um, hockey players, some of them actually do watch the news uh, when they're not playing hockey. So that's nice too. You covered not just Sidney Crosby. You, you covered a lot of, in addition to news, but you covered a lot of sports and sports figures mm -hmm. in your career hockey your number one sport i think so uh you know i i love hockey i mean I, I i wasn't born in canada i was born in england grew up in southeast asia and when i got to canada when i was about six years old and and the whole idea of hockey was i had no idea i mean i was still walking around with a cricket bat um but once I started playing hockey, I loved it. I, you know, I wasn't very good at it, but I, I loved playing hockey. And those were in the days of it was all outdoor rinks um, uh, for kids. And the, even at the organized level, we played outdoors. And, uh, you know, sitting in the little shack by the hockey rink where you'd burn the, your initials into the end of your hockey stick by using the wood stove, mm -hmm. the lettering on the top of the wood stove. Um, so I, I've got a lot of great hockey memories, but, um, but I, you know, I grew up in Ottawa, uh, after we moved to Canada and in Ottawa, you had a choice because at that point the senators didn't exist. Um, I mean, they had existed years before that, but, uh, at that time in the fifties, there was no, uh, no Ottawa senators team, but so you had to choose between the two Canadian teams at that time. And you either went red with the Habs or you went blue with the Leafs. And uh, I chose the Leafs. Everybody else in my family was a Habs fan, still are. Uh, and, uh, and that stayed with me, you know, ever since those days in the 50s. The Leafs have always been uh, either my favorite team or one of the two favorite teams because I spent a lot of time in Manitoba and I was there when Bobby Hull came in. The Jets started in the early 70s and I was a Jets fan and, and I'm, I'm still partial to the Jets. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming the Jets will deal with Edmonton and in, in the playoffs somehow, <laughs> and then they'll probably end up playing either Toronto or Montreal. So we'll see. How sad that 
those are those games are going on in playoffs in a week in a week's time right none of us none of us can attend uh at a time where the country actually would be positively on fire uh with with passion everywhere that yeah it all actually you know there will still be a degree of uh, of that passion exists i mean there are a few things in canada where you can assume that there's the potential that everyone in the country is watching the same thing you know, big news event, sure, you know, 9-11, that kind of thing, you know, everybody's watching the same thing. But the two kind of mainstays have always been hockey or a constitutional <laughs> conference where all the first ministers are kind of going at each other. But we haven't had that hockey moment for a long time because of the lack of success of, of, of Canadian teams. But here we're going to see, you know, two uh, rounds where it's all Canadian that we'll be able to watch. And it's the classic, right? There's the fight for the East and the fight for the West, and then there'll be the fight for the national title. And I think it's, especially right now, where we're all wishing there was something else to be doing, I think you're even going to have some people who don't like hockey are going to be watching hockey for that simple fact. Um, And both opening rounds are, you know, the Winnipeg Edmonton round is a great one for the West. And what more could you ask for in the East than Toronto and Montreal? So, uh, you know, I think it, it has the potential to be and nothing's like being there. And, you know, I'm a season ticket holder in, in Toronto and was in Winnipeg for the first five years of this reincarnation, reincarnation of the jets. Um, but, uh, you know, giving the tickets to my uh, daughters and my grandchildren. Um, but, we're not going to be sitting in the arena. It's going to be very f- strange going back there at some point in the next, hopefully the next year. Um, same with the Raptors. You know, I'm a, uh, For all those years where I was never able to go to a game because I was working at night, I was putting money aside, saving money over time f- to be able to buy season tickets. And so I have them for both the Leafs and the Raptors. And, uh, and I started with the Raptors in the year they won the championship. So that was a pretty nice way to start. Um, but uh, so, of course, this year when the Leafs win the Stanley Cup, it'll be too bad that I won't be there, but I'll be cheering anyway. Hopefully you will be there by then. Uh, from your <laughs> lips, they're going to win the Stanley Cup. You know, yeah. one of the best stories on Wikipedia, I'm hoping it's true, is that during the blackout of uh, the early 2000s late 90s whatever that i guess it was the early 2000s you got called into duty in the middle of the summer and you were unshaven and had to go on the air with a beard i think that's pretty hilarious it's it's hilarious that that made it into wikipedia it's you know it's up there with these controversies that i see about you one about speaking fees and one about your salary like just hilarious stuff to be out there you covered it all elections constitutional crises uh, September 11th, and I guess tangentially now you've even been covering the pandemic from your broadcast chair. Mm-hmm. What to you is in your career has been the story? And I know there's too many, but if, if you had to look back and say, which one did you enjoy professionally? Not that it was a great moment, but which one did you enjoy professionally the most? What was the most fulfilling for you? Well, that's a lot of... <laughs> That's a lot of definitions of, uh, of the big story. So 
I mean, I, I think it's going to be, I never thought I would say this um, after doing 9-11, which was huge. And I was in the studio for 44 hours and, you know, it was, it, it was a, a big story. Um, but so has been the pandemic. You know, this is a story of our lives. Um, future generations will, will ask us and we'll look for evidence from us long after we've gone of what this was like. I mean, to be in some form of lockdown for more than a year and fearful that you were going to die by going outside um, is, it's pretty hard to get bigger than that. Uh, and you've had the opportunity of witnessing everything that's good about people and everything that's bad about people in, uh, in the way they've conducted themselves. And we've created heroes out of people that we never even thought of before. You know, we've had to redefine in our minds what the word essential means. Because the people who, many of the people who we consider essential to our lives in this past year, we'd never thought of in that way before. Could have been as simple as the, you know, the young woman who's, you know, packing your groceries at the, uh, at the grocery store or, you know, the garbage guy or the, you know, the trucker who's bringing in stuff from cross border. I mean, all, all these things we've found out what's essential in our lives and the people who are behind that word in a way we had never done before. So that's a pretty big story. I mean, I, I've been lucky, right? Over 50 years, you cover a lot of things, both in person, you know, I was in Berlin when the wall came down and, you know, and Moscow was communism was crumbling and all of that stuff. Um, those are all huge moments and, you know, particular interviews and this and that and the other thing. But I think what this past year, and I'm glad that I, you know, I started as a hobby. I started the podcast kind of as a hobby and it became quite popular. And then there was this bidding war out of nowhere. I wasn't looking for it. Um, to buy the distribution rights to it. And so suddenly I was back <laughs> kind of like a working journalist professionally, which was a shock. Uh, I hadn't been expecting it at all. Um, but it's, so on the one hand, it's an overwhelming story, a gripping story, but uh, I'm, I'm almost afraid to say this, but it's kind of been fun to do it because it's given me something to be energized about over this past year instead of just sitting around doing nothing, waiting for it all to end. Uh, and, and having the opportunity to, to deal with people, with, one day a week I make the, the program the Fridays. It's kind of like a mailbag. And I just read letters from, from listeners, and they're great. They're just great stories about how they're dealing with it or something about their family or the, you know, the challenges of working at home or you name it. Um, it, it and they're from everywhere, from all across the country, many from the States. Uh, and, you know, you, you understand suddenly the power of sitting in your, you know, in your room, in your home doing a podcast that can be heard anywhere, literally in the world. I, you know, I, I get, mail i get emails from people who are on board ships and you know in the in the north atlantic or you know in the uh, you know around hong kong <laughs> who've listened somehow uh, to this 
podcast and it's a great way of kind of tying and uniting uh, some common bonds out there from uh, wherever they may be. And I'm sure you, you get the same kind of thing, which is, it's really, it's, it's exciting and it's fun. So I'll let you decide what the word favorite means, but you have an opportunity to interview one person that you've covered over your career, whether they're currently with us or not, we're going to grant you that magic wish. Mm-hmm. Who do you want to sit down, have a meal with and, talk to um well you know look i was lucky right i i i had a chance to talk to so many of the of you know those sort of big names i never had trump you know i never got trump um if i thought i could actually get him to sit down and and tell the real donald trump story i think that would be that would be a real coup, but um, I don't have any uh, faith in the ability to do that. I suppose um, if there was one person from anywhere in time, well, let's say the last hundred years, uh, I'd want it to be Churchill because I think there's so much about that guy that is fascinating to try and understand. You know, he wasn't perfect. He certainly had his issues, and there's certainly good reason to condemn a lot of things he did in his life. But there is that one time, you know, that one period of, of 1940, where, you know, he rallied a nation and, and, and said some remarkable things in, in such a remarkable fashion um, that I would love to try and do, a, you know, an interview with him specifically about that time so then of course the final question is which canadian team is going to emerge (laughs) in the playoffs well you know i uh they all have the potential to do that i always worry about montreal i grew up worrying about montreal and knowing that they're going to go into the playoffs with in my view their three best players back on the ice for the first time in weeks, if not months, Carey Price, Shea Weber, Brendan Gallagher. They're going to be a totally different team than any of these teams have played in the last month or two. And they're the Habs. And you've got to be wary of them. Now on paper, you look at it, the Leafs won the division and they won it convincingly. I mean, they have some great players. And in my view, well, if he's not the best, he's the second best player in hockey right now. Uh, he's certainly the best goal scorer. I've never seen anything like it. I don't know. You, you can make the argument. You can certainly make the argument for Edmonton. Uh, and I think even though they've had a crappy last month, I think you can make the argument for Winnipeg too. So I think it's really going to be exciting. I don't think there's any guarantees out there as to who will win. My, you know, if, if you just go from my favoritism, I, I'll say the Leafs or the Jets. Um, but I don't know. I worry about Montreal. Well, you can hear him on your Sirius XM device, whether that's in your car or on your app every day, Monday to Friday, the show's called the bridge. Somebody very smart came up with that. And then (laughs) Thursdays, he does another show called good talk. Uh, so lots of opportunity to listen to Peter. 
again, thank you for not only doing this, but for all that you have done and given all of us over the years of service. Thankfully, you got struck by lightning in that airport all those all those years ago. <laughs> and uh, hoping we can check in with you again, either, you know, whatever, whenever something interesting happens that I'd love, and I'm sure my audience would love to hear your opinion on. Uh, this has been great fun. It's awesome seeing your face. It's great seeing you donning the Maple Leaf logo on you. It's amazing <laughs> that you have it tattooed right there over your heart. That is awesome. Uh, please continue to be well. And uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Joan. It's been a, a treat to have a chance to talk to you and talk to you at, uh, at some length. Hopefully people out there haven't fallen asleep, but uh, it, it has been uh, great to chat. And anytime you want to do it again, we, I'm sure we'll do that. Thanks again to the one and only Peter Mansbridge for joining us in the press row. The press row is brought to you by Bet Online. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Press Row Podcast. You can subscribe on all your favorite podcast platforms. To contact Jonah or to sponsor the show, email Jonah at torontosportsmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.